Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, David. How are we doing? Man, glad you're here today. Uh, I'm and honestly a little surprised that you're still here after last week. Uh, no, that, and if that's like, what is he talking about? Well, last, we're in a conversation on marriage, and it's been deeply challenging. Uh, just out of curiosity, did anyone clean their bathroom this week? <laughs> I did. I did. I compulsively cleaned it Tuesday. So if that's confusing to you, just go back and listen. Um, we've been talking about marriage, and it's deeply uh, a challenging conversation. Uh, the state of many marriages today is basically uh, roommate status. Uh, marriage today is really just kind of a business partnership. You agree on things. Let's just figure out how to coexist with as little as conflict as possible, which means you stay out of my way. You stay in your lane. Don't talk to me about this and that, and I won't talk to you about this or that. And we'll just kind of coexist in a marriage absent of true friendship and absent of true romance. Uh, the Bible is going to push back on that ferociously, as we will see today. That is not what God had in mind when he designed marriage, and not roommates but rather something full of glory and strength and transcendent power. That's what we've been sitting with. So I just want to pray for us real quick, because uh, this has been difficult and challenging, and in many ways I've been poking at the sleeping giants, right? And so let, let me just pray for us, and then we'll get into the conversation. Jesus, would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you be present with us now as we talk about really difficult things, Lord? We talk about the realities of our life. We talk about the real us that's seen in our most intimate relationships. Holy Spirit, come. Would you coax us out of the darkness into your light? In the name you pray these things. Amen. Um, I, I, I do mean it when I say I'm really happy you're with us because, like I said, we have been poking at sleeping giants. Uh, we've been talking about deep, deep, entrenched ways that we think about and approach marriage and family and the closest relationships to us and all of the complicating factors of family of origin, personal history, personal habits, 
All that comes out here. Uh, so whatever you think normal life is, whatever you think normal life ought to be, it comes out in the home. It comes out in the relationships closest to us. That's where it plays itself out. Um, and so here's the thing about relationships and why this has been super uncomfortable for a lot of us. I'll say it this way. Um, here at church, right, in public, amongst your friends and acquaintances, you can be anyone you want to be, right? Like some people are particularly good at this. Pastors are one, right? If you're, if you're outgoing and gregarious and you don't mind lying a little bit here and there, you can be the hero at every party. Everyone will love you. You know what to say. You know who to be. Everyone loves that guy, right? Because you are in control of the narrative. See, with here, <laughs> in places like this, we only let people see the parts we want. It's easy to hide, isn't it? going to let that sink in there. It's going to let that sink in. It's easy to hide in rooms like this, right? It's easy to hide the dysfunction and the unhealthiness and the really embarrassing things about yourself. But in public, right, for the most part, you can control what people see. And for many people, success in life has been dependent on their ability to hide, at least in their minds. So as long as people never know you do this, or I really think this, or how bad I really am with money, I'll be fine. So in many people's minds, success equals my ability to hide who I really am. And for some people, their whole life, they're just really good and good at that. And if this you, you'd be a great politician, maybe a great pastor, I don't know, you know. All my efforts go to image management, all right? But the thing about your closest relationships, those you live with, those at home, it's really hard to be in full control of what people see of you at home. At some point, the mask has to come off, and your guard comes down, and your family or your roommates or your closest friends will eventually see the real you. It's true in family, it's true in roommates, it's true in siblings, it is true times 10 in marriage. Which is probably why people horribly fear marriage, because it's the most intimate, most vulnerable, most revealing relationship there is. Your spouse will see the real you. Despite all your best efforts, who you really are, what you really love will come out. It will be known in marriage. So, if you have really bad gas after you eat ice cream, <laughs> you can only blame the dog so long, right? If you leave every single kitchen cabinet door open when you cook, they're gonna think a ghost has been in this house. If you impulse by all, oh, these are very random, okay, by the way, I'm not like, you know, saying anything to anyone subconsciously. If you, if you impulse buy once a month, if you slurp your coffee, if you make horrible mouth noises when you eat, <laughs> y'all, it's impossible to hide 
in marriage. I mean, people try it, for sure. I mean, some people are pretty good at it, right? But eventually it's seen. If you're horrible with money, if you have an addiction, it's seen. You cannot hide for long in marriage. And even if it's not seen for what it is, your spouse knows something's up. But this dynamic is amplified in marriage because of the deep unity that the Bible talks about that is in marriage. What we read, one flesh. is what we read, right? And secondly, it's even more so in marriage because for the first time, you can't run. You're in covenant. You can dismiss your parents. You can find new roommates. But you made a public legal promise in front of all of your friends. And as easy as divorce may seem today, y'all, it's huge upheaval. And if you've ever been through it, you know it's not easy at all. You have to face your friends and family. You have to face the legal complexities. Um, in marriage for the first time, it is not easy to run. When they point out your obnoxious mouth noise or confront your serious character flaws, right? It's much easier to ghost friends and churches when they confront your character flaws than it is ghost your spouse. It's harder to bail, isn't it? But the problem is marriage, more so than any relationship, serves as a mirror to your own character. According to Ephesians 5, it's supposed to. It's part of how God intends marriage to function in your life. But I think everyone can relate to being frustrated when you catch a glimpse of yourself in a mirror and you have something on your face or something in your teeth and you're like, oh, how long has that been there? In a very adolescent, immature response to seeing the dirt on your face that the mirror reveals is to blame the mirror. But this is very common in marriage, isn't it? Who do you think you are to point out my inconsistencies and hypocrisies? Who do you think you are to reveal that about me, right? It's my money. I can be bad with it if I want. My habits only impact me. They're my demons. What's that to you? That's the thing. Not anymore. They're not just your demons anymore. The Bible says now you're one flesh. So you can no longer say, okay, I'm not perfect. What's that to you? It's a lot to them because they've glued themselves to you. Now, your imbalances and unhealthy habits affects them, if not more, than you. Now, it's their demons too. That's what we get in marriage. In marriage, you get all the amazing things about that person, but you get the whole person, which includes their imperfections and imbalances and sins, right? And they get ours too. And for some people... When the intimacy and the vulnerability of marriage begins to reveal their imperfections, we blame the other person. The other day, I'm kidding, I'm not even kidding, I saw a video of a drunk man picking a fight with himself in the mirror. It was so embarrassing. And the guys in the bar are trying not to laugh while they get this guy. And he's like elbowing the mirror and like pointing at it and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, this is, this is so embarrassing. Um, can I just suggest to you, it is equally as embarrassing when you blame your spouse for the flaws they reveal in you. Marriage is often a mirror. And sometimes we end up trying to blame our spouse for doing, as we'll see today, what God intends for them to do. Help us deal with our imbalances and inconsistencies. Help us shake off our sins and our demons. This, of course... It's extremely difficult. <laughs> 
which is what we'll be talking about today. And so the arrangement many people come to is what I would just call marriage in the shadow lands. Sure, you're married, but you're not in the light of the garden of God. You're not naked and unashamed. You're hiding in the dark. You're Adam and Eve in sin, hiding from God and hiding from each other. You know what they did? They made coverings for themselves. What's that mean? It means they put up safeguards between each other. They put protective layers between themselves and their spouse. And when sin is a permanent fixture in your life, darkness and shadows can become a convenient ally in relationships. And perhaps from marriage, you think, a necessary component to make this thing last. They can't see that part of me or it will fall apart. And the thread that we've been unraveling is what do we do when we begin to see that the other person that we've married is not perfect? They have besetting sins. They have insecurities. They have hypocrisies. And what we said is that when the Western modern mind begins to see uh, cracks in the armor of their spouse, so to speak, they begin to think they've made a great mistake and are entitled to someone who is better, someone perfect, you know, like you, right? And so we start fantasizing about another person who would fit us better. We fantasize about a better spouse, a more beautiful spouse, one who doesn't have these shortcomings and blemishes. That's one approach. What does the Bible think Christians are supposed to do when they see sins and imperfections in their spouse? Well, that's what we read earlier in Ephesians 5. I'm going to read it again, but first let me remind you of the foundations we laid last week. Last week we said your spouse is to be your best friend. We really, really didn't define friendship, though. Um, in The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis uh, gives a picture of the different kinds of relationships, loves, really. Um, he, he, and I'll just tell you two. Um, eros uh, is erotic love, romance, right? Se sexual love, infatuation. And so C.S. Lewis gives us a picture. He said, let me give you a picture of Eros. He says, the picture is two people staring at each other. That's Eros. Uh, the point of this is the other person, complete, total fascination. They're the point. They're the goal. That's eros. Philos is friendship. We said marriage is based on friendship. Philos, not eros. Friend, the picture of friendship that C.S. Lewis gives is two people walking together towards a common horizon. Biblically, marriage is based on philos. It's based on friendship, not erotic love, which is what our society gets backwards. We start with physical attraction and sexual desire and think, well, if friendship gets thrown in, great. Uh, this is wrong for all sorts of reasons. The bottom shelf reason, like the most obvious reason that's wrong, is, okay, cool. They turn you on physically because you're attracted to them. Give them 20 years. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll still be attracted in 20 years. Give them 50 to 60, and you guys will basically look alike. <laughs> Biblically, marriage is first and foremost friendship. It's friendship. What, I want to know what's the process you go about eliminating potential spouses, right? If the, if the, the foundation is friendship, it, you could be eliminating spouses for all the wrong reasons, right? It's not the face, not my body type, whatever, right? But if marriage is first and foremost friendship, if that's true, then what is the common horizon that we are walking towards as married people? And by the way, I should stop and just say everything I'm saying is from Tim Keller, all right? So you don't think I'm that smart. I say that every week. It's important you understand that. If, if marriage is first and foremost friendship, what is the common horizon that we're walking towards as Christians? It can be all sorts of things, but in Christian marriage, there is one 
common horizon. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5 for us slowly again, and then we'll chat. Ephesians 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives. You know how? Oh, the same way that Christ loved the church. So, just pause and everyone breathe. We're going to get to some of these things eventually. Okay, and not today. Um, but let me just point out right now that each of you in this room, you have problems with part of this and not with other parts. There are parts of this that make you really uncomfortable in other parts. And, and most of the time, the thing that makes us uncomfortable is the thing that's talking to us. And the things that we're like, yeah, is the thing that's talking to the spouse for some reason. <laughs> Husbands, just notice that, Okay. In yourself, okay? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, all that was talking about the church. See, he, he, he switched on us. So he's like, oh, yeah, in the same way, husbands, love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, just yeah, let that, guys, all right? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we're a member of his body. There's so much here. Let me just point out the common horizon, and we'll stay focused on that today, okay? The thing that Christian friendship and Christian marriage is based on, the common horizon, is a journey to one day be presented, to stand perfect, blameless, radiant, washed clean, without blemish or spot, before the throne of God. That is the common horizon. So when it says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Okay, he's saying you have to love each other in the same way and for the same outcome that Jesus loves the church. That's how spouses are supposed to love each other, and it is mutual. This is not solely for the husband, ladies. You don't get off here, all right? Just like men Submission is not just for the wife. What was the first verse we read? Boys, what's the first verse we read? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is headship in marriage, but it's lived under mutual submission to Christ. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with the word. Do you catch it? Do I need to just, should we just end now? Are you done? Want to, take, want to take your notes and go home? Just like submission is mutual, within headship, so too both parties are to love each other like Jesus loved the church. Although Paul is clearly laying a heavier responsibility on you, bro. So the point here, though, what we have to wrestle with is how does Jesus love the church? Well, he washes her. That's what it says. He cleanses her. He restores her. He makes her radiant, beautiful, without spot, holy. His love makes her holy. 
The words are sanctified, cleansing, washing, without blemish. That's what his love does to us. Jesus loves you in a way that beautifies you. Theologians call it efficacious love. It's love that takes what's there and amplifies the beauty. It's, it's the love of Jeremiah 15, 19, which says he extracts, he says, extract the precious from the worthless and you will be my spokesman. The word here in Jeremiah, fascinating word. Hebrew, it's the same word in Genesis that it talks about vegetation coming out of the ground, extract, coming, bringing forth, right? In other words, Jesus nourishes his church so that it flourishes. Like a gardener nourishes a garden and brings out what's always there. They talk, the gardener said, the food's there. You just got to bring it out. It needs watering. It needs cultivating. Jesus nourishes and cherishes you. So what? So that he brings out what's there that's good. The image of God that you were created to be, right? So, so, so what? What does it mean? That, that's the common horizon, you see? Uh, being presented having all of that good brought out of us, cleansed, washed clean, right? So that one day the church will be presented without spot, without wrinkle, so that she might be holy and blameless. That's the common horizon of marriage. In one word, it's holiness. It's why Tim Keller says the purpose of marriage is not happiness, it's holiness, right? Well, what can that mean? It means a whole lot. The common horizon of marriage is that we both agree that there are parts of us that are dross and parts of us that are pure gold, each of us brings things that really stink of death. And each of us brings things full of glory to the relationship. It's just true. And the Bible, y'all, gives you this third authoritative party to say, yeah, that part's dross. And yet, that part's gold, right? Therefore, in Christian marriage, we are able to agree on the part of us that's beautiful, that's eternal, that's holy, but that part stinks of death. And the other person says, right. Okay, yes, I see that. It's got to go. So on the one hand, we get really excited about and highly committed to the parts of that person that are full of light and glory and goodness. Sometimes that's what we really see when we first meet them, right? Not just youth, youthful beauty. Sure, that's what we see. But we saw something deeper, something worth committing to. We saw a flicker of immortality. We saw a flicker of glory. And on the one hand, in Ephesians 5, there's washing off the dirt. That's cleansing. And then on the other hand, there's cherishing and nourishing. So there's a positive and there's a negative. Cherishing and nourishing and washing off the dirt. Let's do the positive first, okay? Cherishing means rejoicing in what is there in that other person that is ravishing and beautiful. It's the image of God in them. It's the reflection of God that you see in them. It's the glory buried under all the imperfections and all the way the sin has bound them. It's getting, it's getting excited about them free from sin, fully developed, right? It means, uh, in the, I'm sorry, in the meaning of marriage, uh, Tim Keller uses this illustration. He says this, getting to know a Christian, being married to one, is like getting glimpses of the top of a beautiful mountain shrouded in cloud and fog. The first spark often in relationships is that when the cloud shifted and the fog moved out and wham, we saw the beauty and the majesty of snow-covered peaks and heights and the radiant sunlight and it took your breath away. See, that's what's highest and most noble and most excellent about that person. And then as soon as you see it, whoosh, the clouds come back in. And it's fog and it's rain, but you know it's there. It's there. It's just obstructed, you see? 
is obstructed by their own sin and doubt and fear and shame. And every once in a while, the clouds break again, and you see them, the real them, right? And then, whoosh, the clouds move back in. Or you see who God is redeeming them to be. Marriage is getting excited about the vision of that glorious, radiant, washed clean person that God is making them to be. And it's being committed to it. It's saying, I know who you are. I know you're in there. I know who God's making you into be, and I'm your biggest cheerleader, right? When it comes to goodness and nobility and truthfulness, that's holiness, right? It's acknowledging, I see the Spirit of God working in you, and I want to be a part of that process. I remember when I was dating my wife, and I got a glimmer of the amazing woman God was making her. She picked up her baby niece who was like a year old. She swung her around and she spontaneously burst into song, singing scripture over this baby. And I was like, I want to marry that woman. (laughs) You get glimpses of it, y'all. You get glimpses of it. And some of you, you've forgotten the vision. The cloud and the suffering and the dark night of the soul is obstructed and you don't see who they are anymore. And what you have to do right now is remember who God is making them to be. Remember the glimmer, remember the flickers of immortality that you first saw in that person and saying, I'm going to be committed to that. Sure, you're messed up. Sure, you're hurt. Sure, you got wounded. Sure, you're dysfunctional. But there's something inside you that God is committed to and I want to be committed to that too. That is Christian marriage. Anything short of that, you're just playing marriage. See, we're in a relationship that has windows on eternity. We're looking at this thing through the lens of eternity. We're not a closed system. We're saying that one day God will perfect you. He's washed you clean and he'll wash you again. And that's the foundation of what it means to be a Christian in marriage. It has implications. It means that there's going to be days when there's fog. It means there's going to be days when there's clouds. And it means there's going to be days where you see the gold of that person. It means there's going to be days where you see, where you come face to face with their imperfections and dysfunctions. And it makes you angry, doesn't it? And Ephesians 5 is saying marriage is a furnace. And there are sparks, and not the romantic type. There's heat. And it is the process of burning off that which is not eternal. And you agree with one another. Yeah, this is dross, and it's got to go. But this is gold. See, in marriage outside of Jesus, in normal secular marriages, when they come up against imperfections and warts and all the hypocrisies and things, they don't think of it as dross. They just say, I wish I had someone better. They begin to imagine and fantasize about another person who doesn't have the same flaws their spouse has. In Christian marriage, we do have a vision for something better, but it's that person better. It's them made clean. Them washed in the love of God. Them perfected and purified. We don't want someone else. We want them. Perfect, beautiful, radiant, free from sin and shame, right? Of course we get mad at each other when we see the dross, but we don't want someone else. We cherish them. We nourish them so that they can flourish and come alive in God. That's the positive. That's cherishing, okay? Cherishing. What about the negative? What about this cleansing situation? Washing. How do we deal with the dirt? 
And the analogy Paul uses is absolutely brilliant. He uses the body. Did you catch it? He says, in Christian marriage, spouses relate to one another like you relate to your body. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. In other words, love your spouse like you do your own body. Well, what's the relationship with your body? It's really actually fascinating to think about. Are you your body? I mean, sort of. But are you and your body the same thing? I don't know. Are you separate? I mean, you can talk about your body. You can act on your body. You can find weird things and do stuff to your body. You can hurt it. You can maintain it. You can neglect it. I mean, people talk about their bodies all the time like it's different from who they really are, right? And yet, it's you, <laughs> right? There are things about your body you don't like. <laughs> Unsightly fat here and there. Maybe you work out because you want to change that about your body. Well, you're entitled to. Why? Because it's your body. <laughs> you can do what you want. You maintain things. You need to clean things. <laughs> you wash your body, don't you? You buy clothes to hide your body sometimes. And Paul is saying when you get married, you become one flesh. Now you relate to them like you do your body. Think about what this means. What, is it, what does it mean to clean your body? Well, it's a very private thing, isn't it? You deal with your teeth. You deal with your bad breath. You deal with wax. You deal with the problems of your skin. You wash the dirt off of your body in complete privacy, don't you? What is this saying about marriage? It's saying that your spouse now has the same access to the most private parts of your life. It means that when they see dirt, they now have a right to say, this needs to be cleaned. It means they now have a right to see a need for change and say something about it. It means your spouse will see and take part in cleaning off the dirt. Anyone else terrified by this? Anyone else like, what? That's what marriage, what? Keller's joke is, to put it in Star Trek terms, your spouse goes where no man has gone before. <laughs> but what's the analogy mean, though? What's it mean? We aren't talking about taking baths together. This is what it means. What kind of person are you? Are you a moody person? You prone to mood swings? Are you an indecisive person? Are you an abrupt and critical person? Are you an angry person? Are you a scaredy cat person about this or that? Are you an impatient person? Well, in the past, you could almost always clean yourself, so to speak, in private. You could hide those things from other people, but now you're constantly humiliated because your spouse sees it all. And then they have the nerve to say something about it. <laughs> and if, you, look at me, and if you're too touchy, if you're too touchy to hear it, to take it, and you bark back in anger and retaliation, number one, You've missed the gospel. First and foremost, you don't understand how the love and grace of God has set you free from the performance mentality and that you are no longer how you act and perform, that, God, that you are not your sin, that the grace of God is stronger than your sin, and there's mercy. But number two, if you say to your spouse, you don't have the right to talk to me about that, you don't understand the common horizon of marriage. You've missed the whole dynamic. That is the purpose of marriage, which is to help you become holy. Your spouse is a vehicle of redemption in your life. It means that they get to talk to you now about the dirt. They get to help you identify it. They get to be the mirror that you 
are annoyed by. When it reveals something about you that you'd rather, it means that it's part of their job to make you holy without spot or blemish. That's what we read. If you think that you're a spiritual person, you know God, and you want to be holy, and you know the gospel and all this, but you can't hear when your spouse points out sin, think again. It is their job to help you deal with the dirt. According to Ephesians 5, one of the primary tools of sanctification that God wants to use is the person you marry. It's part of their job. In love and mutual submission, full of the Holy Spirit, all that's assumed here. But they're submitting their lives to Jesus, right? And part of that submission, part of that is helping wash the person in a way that loves and cherishes them. Serving them by helping remove the dirt, y'all. And we spend half of our life denying the dirt. And in marriage, you can't live in denial anymore. And the more committed you are to denying your sins and shortcomings, the worse your marriage will be. That's on the receiving side. But what about the sins that you see in them? What about when you have to deal with their dysfunction? Well, what we just talked about was how difficult it is to let them wash us and point out sin to us, which always feels like criticism, doesn't it? Right? But what about when you have to point out sins to them? What about the other side? It always feels like criticism. But how can you do it without killing them? <laughs> you see? How can you receive it without being killed? How can you say, yeah, yeah, you're right. I do see that. I'm really offended right now. Well, just think about how you clean your own body. How do you do it? Oh, with such meticulous care and tenderness and gentleness. We're so careful with our own body and absolutely terrified when someone else gets that kind of access, right? I would rather take a splinter out myself than have my wife do it. Lord have mercy, right? Because I'm going to be so, 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 so careful. And it just, God forbid, it's in some horrible place I can't reach. Careful, 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 right? <laughs> We're terrified that they're not going to be sensitive enough, aren't we? Right? That they're not going to be tender enough to deal with these things in our lives that are tender. Don't poke out my lifelong struggle, woman, Right? Dealing with this forever, right? <laughs> and we're just not sensitive with one another, are we? Um, which, listen, this is a part of the inherent power of marriage. Listen, I say this at every wedding I uh, officiate. Your words have tremendous, tremendous impact on your spouse more than you will ever know. Your perspective of them, literally, it shadows almost every other perspective in their life. I had a friend who uh, went through a horrible divorce, and years and years and years later, we're camping around a campfire, and I mean, this is a year, like almost a decade, and he'd just bring up this one thing his ex-wife said. I said, bro, it's been like eight years, and he'd just say the thing that she said, and he would just stare in the fire. It brutalized him. I mean, he'd moved on. He's in a different marriage now, right? But he'd still, he couldn't get over this one thing. And see, here's the problem, y'all. We go through life with our siblings and our friends being careless with our words. Uh, the, but the power of marriage is that person's perspective, their words, now has tremendous power, right? And if you don't realize there's tremendous power, you're going to treat them like you did your siblings or your parents. You're going to say the same kind of words. And you're thinking, I just got a BB gun in my hand. And you're going to rattle it off. And you didn't know you had a bazooka in your hand. All that's left is some sneakers with smoke coming out of it. Right? You thought, we're, this is fine. Listen, your words will tremendously form 
who they are becoming. It's part of the power of marriage, right? And you have a, as a spouse, you have a, a kind of ability to almost rewire their psychology. By the, if, if, listen, if, if your spouse says you're beautiful, you're ravishing, I love you, it doesn't matter who says you're ugly. You, you got, man, yeah, man. If, you're, if, you're wed, if your marriage is strong, you can move out into the world in strength, no matter what kind of opposition. If your marriage is weak, you move out into the world in weakness, right? That's the danger and vulnerability of marriage. And the reason, honestly, many of us just don't deal with difficult topics, right? So, but let's say this. Let's take it another level forward, okay? Let's say that your body has been all scratched up. You got a bike accident or something like that. Fell on the pavement. And then you had to get in the shower. <sighs> oh, it stings. Oh, right? <laughs> right? Stings like the devil. Or... Let's say you're seriously wounded. Like you got a cast on, you can't get that stupid thing wet. Bathing's horrible, right? Gotta keep that thing out of the water, or maybe you have stitches, you have to, oh, so gently rinse it, right? And make sure it's dry, and there's all this extra maintenance, right? And listen, right now, if you have heard nothing else I've said, you need to hear this. Some of you are married to people who have deep, profound, emotional woundedness. And it may go all the way back to childhood, and you have got to learn to be gentle and patient and sensitive if you are going to help them. And it's possible that if they're deeply wounded, you don't even know the half of it. But on the other side, if you have scars and wounds and deep things that go all the way back to your childhood, you have to realize now that it doesn't just affect you anymore. Look at me. At some point, you have to deal with it. How many marriages will you have to go through before you realize my brokenness is now their brokenness? And instead of bailing when the brokenness is revealed, realize, I have to deal with this. And listen, listen. I know this is hard, but it's part of the glory of marriage, and this is why. All of it is pointing to Jesus. All of it. He came to us in gentleness and meekness. He said... I will take their brokenness on myself. He said, I will deal with the brokenness in them and I will be alongside them as they work through their brokenness. In fact, I will take it onto myself. I'll deal with it. I'll be, I will never leave them or forsake them. It's why Paul talks about this profound mystery. Right? He says, well, I'm talking about Jesus in the church, but yeah, husbands, love your wives as yourself. Jesus came to us in our brokenness and said, I am committed to you still. He came to us in our filth and said, I love you still, and I'm not going anywhere. He came to us in our adultery and remained faithful to us. For if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It says in Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench till he brings forth justice. It means he's gentle. 
If you're bent over, almost about to break under the weight of your own woundedness, he doesn't come upon you and break you in half. It means that if the light has all but gone out, if there's still, there's nothing left, it's just a smoking wick, he doesn't snuff you out. He's gentle with us on the one hand, but he does confront you. But he does it in love, doesn't he? In covenant love. He confronts you in your sin, but he does it in a way that is faithful to you. Covenant love. He, does, he says, I'll never leave or forsake you. The mystery of marriage is the power of what being united to that person does, right? But Paul is pointing out the mystery is that it's an echo of the unity between Jesus and his followers. You see? Jesus cleanses us, nourishes us, washes us. The deep oneness between husband and wife is an echo of the deep oneness that Jesus wants to have with you, where we get to share in his holiness and he shares in our brokenness. And after a long, hard day of marriage, you can be defeated, and sometimes all you can say is, ugh, what a profound mystery. But then remember... The more mysterious than all the complications of being male and female and binding ourselves together is God binding himself to you. More mysterious than all that is being combined, partaking in the divine nature, which is what we get to do in Jesus, right? That you may become partakers in his nature. You see that when we get married, all of us becomes one with them. They get all of us. And when you become a Christian, you get all of Jesus. His holiness, his righteousness. It's an echo, guys. It's a reflection. And it's the mystery of marriage. Let me pray for us. Jesus.